Calling all Swifties and champions of change, Like a Girl Media is rolling out the red carpet for you with our Thrive Like a Girl contest. We're all about celebrating powerful women leaders who inspire us to dream big and push boundaries. And who embodies that spirit more than Taylor Swift herself? Here's your chance to see her live in concert. We're giving away two tickets to Taylor Swift's show in London on Saturday, June 22nd. Imagine being part of the magic, all thanks to Like a Girl Media. Entering is easy. Subscribe, share, and show us which episodes inspired you the most. Visit our website or check our social media for all the details. Don't just dream it, be it. Thrive like a girl and make this summer unforgettable. Contest opens globally. Voidware prohibited. Must be 18 or older to enter. No purchase necessary. Subscribe and share with hashtag thrive like a girl and tag us at like a girl underscore media for entry. Unlimited entries means unlimited chances. Winner chosen at random after contest closes May 20th, 2024. We'll be notified via DM. Make sure your profiles are not private. Check full rules on our site. This is your shot to see Taylor Swift live. Don't miss it. Hello and welcome to the Hit Like a Girl podcast. My name is Joy Rios. We like to talk about on this show all of the puzzle pieces that make up healthcare. It is a super complicated industry and each guest gets to share their expertise in sort of the place where they hold their puzzle piece that they hold in the healthcare slash health IT economy. So today we have an amazing guest, Bethany Corbin. Bethany, would you mind taking a moment to introduce yourself and talk about the area that you work in in the healthcare space. Absolutely. So thankful to be here, Joy. Thank you so much for having me on the show today. I'm Bethany Corbin. I'm senior counsel at Nixon Gwilt Law, and I'm also the femtech practice lead. So I spend a lot of my time helping femtech, meaning female health technology companies, really build and scale their companies so that they're able to transform and redefine healthcare delivery for women's health. I also work with a lot of digital health companies outside of femtech, but also still in the healthcare innovation space, really helping to drive change for healthcare and the ways in which care is delivered for patients across the globe, not just in the U.S. And in addition, I am also a mentor at Femtech Lab, which is an accelerator that's dedicated to women's health. I love it. That's amazing. So the global landscape for healthcare has kind of changed quite a bit for women in the last couple of weeks. Can we talk about that? And I'll leave that open-ended, let you take it wherever you want to go. <laughs> yeah, no, you're absolutely right. The, the landscape has shifted pretty dramatically in only a couple of weeks. So ever since we had the leaked decision in the Dobbs case back in May, there's been a substantial substantial focus now in the healthcare industry about how we can support women, how we can make sure that they're getting access to the healthcare they need from you know, a healthcare app perspective in terms of redefining what it means to have enhanced and appropriate privacy and security features to providers who are trying to figure out how they can best support women in this space. Does it mean getting additional licenses? Does it mean crossing state borders to helping, you know, in those kind of um, border states, helping to transform care and provide care there? And then also from the employer perspective, what does that look like from a benefits perspective with respect to abortion travel benefits, making sure that employees feel like they're being heard and supported from a healthcare perspective? So a lot of different angles that we've started to 
see pop up in just the past couple of weeks. And it's, as you mentioned, it's a very shifting landscape. So a lot more change is expected to be on the horizon in the next couple of months. So I think it might be most beneficial to like just consider our, our, our listeners. And uh, like there's so many different ways that we can go. But, you know, conversations have shifted around should people... Let me just start off with what I think. Like... Should people be deleting their period tracking apps? That has been a conversation. What is your legal perspective on that? Yeah, it's a conversation that we've really started to see gain focus since May. There's a lot of fear among women, especially, about whether or not the data that they're inputting into their period tracking and other femtech applications, be it you know fertility or ovulation tracking apps as well, whether that could be used against them by law enforcement officers in those states that have restricted abortion to try to prove that they either, A, can committed an illegal abortion or B, had the intent to commit an abortion. So that's really where that fear stems from. I will say that the fear is not unfounded. There are ways in which law enforcement officers can gain access to the data that consumers are putting into those apps. So just to give the audience a bit of perspective here, Law enforcement officers can subpoena your data from the application if they have reasonable suspicion that you may have committed a crime, which in the states that are prohibiting abortion or restricting it, depending on how that state law is written, that may be a possible crime that somebody has committed. Law enforcement officers can also gain access to the data by getting that data downstream. So they don't necessarily have to go directly to the app itself. A lot of these apps that are on the market engage in what is known as the downstream selling or sharing of data especially to data brokers or to companies right like social media like Facebook or Google or those types of things. And so that's one way in which these companies make revenue. So we see this model most often in the apps that have a free version compared to apps that have a version that requires you to purchase it or an upgradable version. That's not to say we don't see the downstream selling and sharing of data for those paid for apps. But when we consider that it's a a big revenue source for these apps, we can see why it's more common in the free versions. So what can happen right, is that your data might get sold to a data broker And that happened, Um, for instance, Vice was able to actually go and purchase from a data broker for about $160 data that actually showed locations where people had come from, locations in which they visited these types of abortion clinics, where they went afterwards. And you can use that data to kind of piece back together where, like who that person actually is. And law enforcement can also get access to that same data that the data broker has. They could go and purchase it just like you could purchase it, I could purchase it. And it's actually one way in which they can get data without having to subpoena the company. So when we think about that landscape and we think about the fact that law enforcement is very used to you know submitting these types of subpoenas and record requests you know companies like Google or these types you know Apple companies that house data it's not going to be uncommon for them to start issuing these requests for the femtech companies Now, should you then delete your femtech app? I believe that's very much a personal decision. I think that there's a lot of misinformation, though, that is spurring around out there. So the first thing to note is that a lot of the laws that are on the books today with respect to criminalizing or prohibiting abortion don't actually criminalize the woman herself for getting an abortion. They instead usually focus on the providers or those who are helping the woman access those abortion services. So A bit of a misconception there about who is being criminalized. In a lot of cases, it's not the actual woman whose data is being inputted into those apps. As you mentioned, Joy, though, we are in a very changing landscape. So that's not to say that those laws aren't on the horizon, that they might not be coming up next. And so, so there are valid fears with respect to inputting your data. 
If we think about the flip side, though, this isn't necessarily the time in which we want to be abandoning femtech because it's taken women so long to actually be integrated into modern healthcare that what we're starting to see is if women are very fearful of the apps that could one day start to change the way that we deliver women's health care, that can stifle innovation as well. So it's very much a personal decision, um, but I would just take into, a, into account you know, the types of laws that are out there, whether or not there's actual risk, real risk for that woman herself to be criminalized at this point in time, and then make the decision based on you know just each individual woman's comfort level. I mean, and it also seems like it really depends on the state that you live in now. And so people that live in Alabama have clearly a different set of concerns than perhaps people that live in Oregon. Yeah, that's absolutely right. We're we're entering a landscape in which each state is going to have its own policies and procedures and perceptions about abortion. So we'll see states like California and New York, right, which are going to be very protective of abortion rights. And then we have states like Texas, which have enacted an aiding and abetting law that's even going kind of one step further to anybody who's helping a woman obtain an abortion. And so it's going to be a very fractured landscape landscape. What worries me about it is if we look at it kind of a data perspective, this is going to negatively impact certain racial minorities or ethnic groups, and especially those right who are in states that have abortion restrictive policies. More often, what we've seen is in those states that have those trigger laws, there's a much higher percentage of African-American and Hispanic women who are obtaining abortions there than Caucasian women. And to me, what that suggests is those are going to be the people who are more likely to stop using those types of applications, deleting their period trackers, which then means that the data that we're getting into those algorithms and that's then being fed downstream to researchers is not going to be reflective of the entire population. And that's concerning. That makes a lot of sense. I hadn't really thought about it in exactly that manner. Another thing that comes up for me are particular drugs like FDA approved or ones that are soon to be FDA approved drugs. And there's a conversation around like ones that can be supportive in helping an abortion, either through mail, which is interesting, the, the most recent like Biden administration, like executive order to support the, the postal office of like mail, you know, getting medication through the mail. But there are certain medications that may be useful for other diseases and other chronic conditions. Can we talk about like that gray area of what that could possibly mean? And also that's pretty open-ended. I'll let you take it. <laughs> yeah, there's actually two gray areas in what you just talked about that I'm going to touch upon. So the first I want to talk about is, is what you mentioned with respect to these drugs potentially having other uses than just abortion. So the abortion pill, for those who aren't familiar, is a two-pill process. It's Mifepristone and Misprostol. And what they do, right, is they are you know used to obviously have an abortion, but they also have other off-label uses or uses that are now being tested in clinical trials. So abortion is not the only use for the abortion pill. Right now, what we're seeing is that those who are taking what is known as the abortion pill for other diseases, like for instance, you know, there might be rheumat, you know, like immune compromised position, you know, uh, diseases or rheumatology illnesses, those types of things that require these pills that are being used in that way. We're actually seeing some uh, prescribers and healthcare organizations stop filling those prescriptions. Pharmacies stop filling them because of the abortion laws in their states. And so they're not sure how to navigate that space because technically it's a pill that could be used for an abortion, even though it's not having that impact or that use for that particular person. How can that pharmacy and that prescriber say definitively, right, that that person is never going to use that medication to induce an abortion? So it's very complicated. Um, we're also seeing that with emergency contraception 
which is legal in all 50 states right now. Some hospital organizations, healthcare organizations have stopped prescribing it and have said, you can't get emergency contraception here. That's not something that we can do right now until this landscape settles down. Part of that, I think, goes to, again, misinformation, not really understanding what the landscape is actually saying, what the laws currently say, and also risk mitigation, right? Because as I mentioned before, a lot of that risk is going to fall on the providers, under, you know, just given the way that these laws are currently written. So we have, you know, a lot of concerns there. There's a real fear that these abortion laws are going to stifle the clinical trials and the ways that in which these drugs could be used to help other illnesses. And I think that's a real possibility and a real concern at this point in time, especially given that some organizations have actually stopped filling these prescriptions and it's having a just immediate harmful impact on those individuals. And there's a couple. Oh, I'm sorry. Continue. Oh, no, no. I was just going to talk about the other gray area in which you mentioned, which is really um, you mentioned, right, these pills, these abortion pills being available via mail. It's very interesting because the FDA has said that it is safe and effective to dispense these abortion pills via mail, via telehealth. And yet you have a lot of states that have actively said, no, we're not going to allow the teleprescribing of the abortion pill in our jurisdiction, or if not outright banning the teleprescribing of it, imposing restrictions that just make it infeasible, such as, you know, ultrasounds, waiting periods, counseling requirements. So we're also seeing a Kate coming up through the courts right now that's challenging whether or not states can impose these additional limitations on drug dispensing beyond what the FDA has said. There's two things that come up for me. And one is just like trust. Like we're really at a situation right now where I feel like there's a breakdown in trust between patient and providers, providers amongst themselves. Like if making the wrong decision can definitely have some major consequences for everybody involved. I mean, there was the somewhat famous case of the 10-year-old girl who went and had to cross state lines and then and now they're going after like they publicly named the provider that supported her I don't expect you to have the answer but how do we rebuild trust that people can actually get the care that they need that is the part that one aspect that is very scary to me oh hugely scary because it's not only rebuilding trust right in terms of the actual medical care itself but also you know in the femtech apps themselves that haven't necessarily been protecting privacy and security as stringently as they should have to date i think that there's a huge lack of trust across the entire women's healthcare industry and if we're not careful and if companies and providers and healthcare organizations aren't actively working to rebuild that trust, we're going to see like very negative long-term impacts on women's health care. So for instance, you know, it concerns me, you mentioned that, um, you know, the case of the 10-year-old girl, there's also been cases that have been reported where women may be having a miscarriage and are unable, right, to have the fecal matter expelled because they don't know if there was a heartbeat. So it could lead to the woman having, you know, a severe risk of infection, bleeding to death, and she's unable to get the care that she needs, even though she's actively having a miscarriage. And so we're seeing those types of complications right now. It's really concerning, especially given the fact that the U.S. has a a pretty terrible um, maternal mortality rate. Whenever we look across the developed nations, we're going to, I think, see some increases, unfortunately, in the maternal mortality rate because women are not going to be able to access this care. 
It also really worries me too, as I mentioned before, there might be some, you know, ethnic and racial groups that are going to be disproportionately impacted. If there's not trust being built back up in the femtech apps, which can be a way on which individuals who might be, you know, in rural locations, out or below the poverty line, ways in which they can access affordable care. If they're not trusting those apps, they're also going to be deleting those apps and meaning they're not going to have another way in which to access the care they need. So we've got a huge trust problem here. You're absolutely right. I really wish I had the answer on how to rebuild it. And then, so then that brings me to my second observation, which has to do with the data itself. And it's like, okay, if we just had the clock turned back 50 years and we understand like, okay, why did we not have data on women in so many ways because of clinical trials or just because of like the view of medicine and how it does or like the, the idea that women are just like smaller versions of men, which is something that we've talked about on this show quite a bit, but that's clearly not the case. But how do we actually, I mean, we're going to have an even bigger data problem. It will be this similar where you're just like, oh, okay, now we have this big blind spot where we don't know what we don't know if women are not either like taken care of in a way that can be honest and accurate. And especially people are trying to withhold information because unfortunately it can be used against them. Yeah, it's a huge problem. What I've also seen too are reports of, you know, men potentially going into these femtech apps and putting in false data to try and throw, you know, prosecutors and police officers off the trail. And while that seems like a good idea in theory, right? A lot of those femtech apps have partnerships with researchers who are actually doing, you know, healthcare research on long-term women's health issues. And then that false data could be added to the mix of things that they're looking at. So not only do you have, you know, the potential discrepancies in inclusive data that I was talking about before, but now you also have potentially false data that's in no way reflective of anything that a woman's going through being used to make long-term predictions and healthcare treatment plans for women. And I find, you know, that's, that's very concerning and should not be something that we have to resort to. And yet kind of here we are in that landscape where people are actually considering doing that. And then uh, then the other thing, like as all of these pieces add up to each other, I continue to think about diversity, equity, and inclusion. And if we have more people and voices, perspectives, et cetera, included in these like top level decisions that are being made, hopefully the better off we, you know, we'll all be. But I mean, I feel like we could lose track. I don't know. I'm just, I'm genuinely struggling as I'm sure you are too around like what is going to happen here? Because it just feels like a lot of rights that have been hard earned are getting chipped away. And what's, and, and, and then the question is like, what's next? Like, Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You have seen so far a lot of concern about, you know, because, for those who aren't as familiar with the decision, right, the right that we had for an abortion was really premised on this underlying right to privacy. You know, that the 14th Amendment has the right, you know, for women and, and others to be free from intrusion into their personal lives. And so with the chipping away of that right to privacy, that also opens up potentially the right to chip away at other longstanding rights that were built upon that right to privacy. So some of the ones that we have seen talked about in the news recently are things like the right to gay marriage or the right to contraception. There's definitely the possibility that those could get chipped away. I'm also worried about things like emergency contraception or IVF treatments, because even if we don't challenge any other Supreme Court decision, let's say that we don't challenge, you know, Griswold or the right to contraception, I could still see states trying to prohibit or substantially restrict the types of contraception that women can access because 
there's a, usually a secondary way in which those contraceptions work, which is to prevent the implantation of a fertilized egg. Usually they work right to prevent the fertilization of an egg in the first place, which is not controversial in terms of abortion laws. But if you've got a fertilized egg that's then not being able to implant, under laws, right, that define life as beginning at the moment of conception and fertilization, that could technically be seen as an abortion. And so states could start to argue that, you know, things like IUDs or the birth control pill, that those should also be prohibited or restricted under these abortion laws. And things like IVF, where you actually have fertilized embryos, what happens there? Because the way that IVF works is typically they will, right, put multiple of those fertilized embryos into you and take out any that are not going to be viable, especially if too many implant. Would that be considered an abortion? Does that mean that you then can't discard your embryos once you're finished with them? Do you know, how is the state going to make you continue to pay thousands of dollars to keep those in storage? Do you have to donate them? What does that whole landscape look like? It's very concerning right now. Well, and to your point, and you're one of the, I think you may be the first lawyer that I've had on the show. So I'm going to ask you, like, where does it end? Because there's the woman who went into the carpool lane in Texas, right? Where she's like, I'm pregnant. And according to you, this is a baby. So technically we've got two persons. And when we talk about when does child support start and how can, you know, when can you actually add that you have a dependent on your taxes? Like it can get pretty messy. So as the legal counsel today, how can you, can you clarify? <laughs> yeah. You know what? It's interesting because from a legal perspective, there are huge, huge amounts of ways in which this could go. I mean, it, it's everything that you mentioned plus more in terms of the legal challenges that we're going to see. And I fully anticipate that we're going to see a lot of lawsuits being filed all across the nation for things exactly like that. Um, you know, child support. I've got a fertilized embryo. I've got a fertilized egg in me right now. Uh, that means that I'm owed child support. We're also going to see things like there's some states, for instance, right now that don't already allow you to have a divorce if a woman's pregnant. How is that going to work? Uh, we're going to see a lot of challenges there. Lots of challenges, you know, to, to all the rights that we've already talked about. It throws into jeopardy and into, you know, real confusion, all of that. And it's very interesting to me, right, because you have the Supreme Court also saying, you know, don't take this opinion for what it's not. It's just applying to abortion. But that right to abortion it has so many other layers and so many other tentacles that really spring from it that you're touching almost every aspect now of that woman's life. So yes, while your opinion may have been technically limited to abortion, we have Justice Thomas's you know concurrence that's saying, let's go open up all of these other decisions based on that right to privacy. We have the contraception, the IVF, the carpool lane, child support, divorce, all of that now. I can even see a lot of implications, for instance, you know, in domestic violence contexts too. So all of that is basically open at this point in time. Um, and I think that we're going to see a lot of lawsuits trying to figure out that landscape because it's not settled. We don't have a lot of case law or precedent right now, given the fact that this was a protected right for you know 50 plus years. So we, we don't have a lot of case law on that. And that's, I think, the next step is figuring out what that legal landscape looks like and what makes it really challenging is that that legal landscape is now going to be different in almost every single state if we don't get a right to abortion at the federal level anymore. Um, and I know that we've started to see, you know, the House just recently passed a bill to protect the federal, you know, abortion at the federal level. We'll see if that passes. I don't know that they have the votes to get that through the Senate. So we're, we're going to be seeing a lot of bills being passed, a lot of change at the state level, and a lot of lawsuits. The conversation around precedent, you just mentioned that, and I'm just like, I can't believe that the precedent that they actually based this on this particular decision is like in a different century, like two centuries ago. <laughs> and so like, we're not really in a good place 
to be looking at precedent for women's rights. And so, I mean, if there's any light at the tunnel, like that's like I'm really digging is that maybe with all of these other lawsuits and different cases that go through, we will start to create some precedent that work in our favor or just more that works against us. I don't know, but fingers crossed. It's going to be challenging. And it's, you know, at this point, I think a lot of people are having to rely on Congress to come in and do its job and protect that right to abortion at the federal level if we want to get it back. It's really interesting to me that, you know, for so long, Congress never wanted or never had, you know, kind of the need to protect that because they thought it was protected by that Supreme Court case of Roe versus Wade. And now look where we are. So I think it's also, you know, a good lesson for going into the future of thinking about these rights that are, you know, just based on Supreme Court precedent, do those need to be codified into law or do we risk the same type of a situation going forward for other rights? What's your opinion about the Equal Rights Amendment? Do you think that that has an opportunity to get passed? Finally? (laughs) Yeah, they've been been trying for a while. Um, I don't know that we, I don't know that they have the votes. I think that's, you know, part of it is just making sure that you've got the votes to get that through. So it'll be interesting to see. I'm hoping that we get some type of legislation passed soon. Otherwise, you know, we're going to see not only all these lawsuits popping up, trying to understand the boundaries of the laws, but also, as we were talking about before, physicians and practitioners and healthcare organizations not knowing what their risk is and having to take much more risk adverse positions because it's their licenses, right? It's their liability on the line if they do something that turns out to be illegal under a state law. And so, you know, you can't fault them for wanting to make sure that they're protecting themselves. But at the same time, we could be restricting access to a lot of needed services that are actually legal. So you work a lot in femtech space, and I just continue to be thinking about how can we support, like, what are the ways what can we do now? Like what action can we be action oriented? And is it a matter of just donating money into the right funds or are there ways that we can support femtech on a grander scale? Yeah, it's a great question. So, so there's a couple of things that spring to mind, you know, the first, and I'm sure everyone has heard, right. is kind of get out, vote, make, make your voices heard because that's, I think where these laws are going to come from now that we can't rely on the court system. It's going to be at the federal and the state levels. And so you want to make sure that you have the individuals in power in federal and state government that are going to be advocating for the rights that you want to have protected. So that's kind of the, you know, the first most important, most obvious thing. The second is that for femtech companies, right, we've, we as consumers have to be demanding more of them in terms of more privacy, more security, and making sure that they understand that they need to have these types of privacy-centric models that are going to be protecting reproductive health data. So I think, you know, as consumers for so long, we didn't have a way in which to compare apps that were on the market today. You know, how can a consumer tell if one period tracking app is really that much more protective of privacy than the other? Since the leak of the Dobbs decision, we've started to see surveys come out. We started to see studies be posted about which apps are collecting too much data compared to others to do the same type of function. So as consumers, I think we now have a bit of more responsibility to not only look out for our data, right, but to also be saying, hey, this app is collecting so much more data. Why? We need to kind of push back on them. What are their privacy practices? What are their security procedures? Are they really taking our interests to heart, right? And making, you know, kind of from the consumer level, we now have more power and making that known and making sure that companies are really taking into account our rights, our preferences, and what we want to see. I just think that we have an unprecedented level of power right now with those types of companies to make sure that we're getting what we want because, right, the the alternative is we abandon Femtech. And that's not going to be good for the companies. It's not going to be good for 
long-term women's health care. So I think really making sure that companies understand what we need is a really crucial factor here. Okay, so that's offering feedback and suggestions and basically having a more of an open dialogue with those service providers, essentially. Exactly, yeah, and making sure that you know, as well with respect to your own apps, right, your own data, making sure that you understand what's in that privacy policy for an app that you've agreed to. I can tell you, I know basically nobody who actually reads those privacy policies before clicking check. I'm a lawyer. I cannot say that I read them all, you know, so so I totally get that. If you're looking to try to understand more about how a company is using your data, one thing that you can do is open up that privacy policy and look for the disclosure section, how they're using and disclosing your data. You're right. It's typically a paragraph to a couple of paragraphs. You don't have to read the entire thing, but it gives you a really good sense for whether or not they're going to sell your data downstream or use it downstream. And you can get more knowledge that way and start to think, okay, I'm comfortable with that or you know what, I'm not comfortable with that. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to contact them, push back against that or switch apps. Well, Bethany, I am so grateful to just to have a resource like you available. Thank you so much for coming on the show. If people want to get in touch with you, ask you questions, follow you online, where do you direct them? Yeah, absolutely. So you feel free to get in touch with me. I'm on LinkedIn, very active. Um, I think my handle name is just Bethany Corbin. I am also <clears throat> the host of the Legally Femtech podcast. So feel free to tune in there. And then you can also find me on the Nixon Gwilt Law website and reach out to me via email. It's just bethany.corbin at nixongwiltlaw.com. Fantastic. I'll include all of that in the show notes. I so appreciate everything that you're doing. Please keep up the good work. Thank you so much, Joy. Really appreciate being on this episode and, and just having this conversation. I think it's really important. Agreed. Well, thanks again. Thanks. Thanks for listening. You can learn more about us or this guest by going to our website or visiting us on any of the socials with the handle hit like a girl pod. Thanks again. See you soon.